Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, many Democratic candidates are counting on the Latino vote, but are they doing enough to get it? Deported parents forced to leave their children behind could lose them to adoption. Plus, where are the landmarks highlighting Latino history in the U.S.? It's our Latinx News Roundtable. Later in the show, in over 100 years of jazz, female musicians have almost always been invisible. When we think of the sort of iconic figure, jazz figure, we often think of the saxophonist, and we don't think of a Tia Fuller. Now, a new institute at Berkeley College of Music is asking, what would jazz sound like without patriarchy? But first, joining me in the studio, Marcella Garcia, an editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Welcome back, Marcella. Hi, Callie. Hello. And joining me from the studios of NPR West National Headquarters in Culver City, California, Adriana Maestas, who is a freelance writer based in Southern California covering Latino politics. Hello, Adriana. Hello, Callie. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. And it's your first time, and I hope it won't be the last. Thank you. I'm going to start with uh, Latino voters and the sleeping giant moniker that we hear around this time. And I see Marcella rolling her eyes already (laughs) because this comes up at election time all the time and we have this discussion. But so it goes is that there is a mass numbers of Latinos who are registered to vote or either being waiting to be registered to vote. And if they could just be mobilized, they would crush several elections or (laughs) be the change agents and many others. And here we are again. And this time I'm hearing some some of that, but I'm also hearing a lot of people saying could be, but y'all didn't do anything. Right. So, (laughs) Callie, how long have we been talking about this? Honest to God, it's been at least eight, seven years Mm -hmm. that at least you and I, this discussion here in this show. Um, there's always, I, it's just impossible not to roll your eyes because of course the numbers are there. Of course the numbers keep growing. You know, this, this earlier, uh, this month it was reported that now a new record, we have 29 million Hispanics eligible to vote this November. But the one thing that's different at least this time around is that, you know, in a way the Democrats have been sort of, you know, called out, Uh, by Latinos, because for the longest time, it was sort of like a foregone conclusion that Latinos vote Democrat and that Democrats are the party that Latinos, you know, should vote for because, you know, Republicans are just, you know, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they, they were. And so that sort of gave cover to the Democratic Party to basically just take it for granted, take the Latino vote for granted. And right now we're seeing you know, again, I hate to call it the server lining of the Trump presidency, but but now that cover has been blown. You know, it's it's uh, there, there's been a lot of data recently. There's um, this national firm that does uh, polling and they started doing polling about 
you know, Latino voters and how they've been targeted and or not targeted. And that's what they found. They they found that, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, we, you know, we had an election on November 6th, and there's still a large number of Latino voters who have not been targeted or there's been no outreach to them from either party. And so to be clear about what we mean by outreach, that means nobody knocked on the door. Nobody, nobody called no candidate. Them, nobody's yeah. perhaps even nobody sent them a flyer. Right. Okay. Th- this firm has been tracking mm-hmm. these voters saying, hey, have you been, you know, has any campaign been in touch with you by phone? You're right. Like mm-hmm. or or even, um, you know, knock on the on your door. And, and no, it's like the number is like 69, 70 percent. And so now now you have numbers to prove that neither party has been in touch or targeting this demographic. And, and so, of course, it's, you know, the, the, we can debate all day or talk about the reasons for that, which are very important, too. Um, but the reality is that, you know, the Latino vote needs to be activated with the right message and with the right candidate. And so that part no one has figured that out, that part. Um, I mean, we can talk about examples yeah, yeah. of who, who has done it right here and there. I could point to Ayanna Presley, for example, mm-hmm. the local um, you know, black candidate for, for Congress here in Massachusetts who won. But but again, like, you know, we are not a monolithic blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And so I think that kind of understanding, we're slowly getting there. Uh, but but it's very nuanced and it's going to take a lot more time to activate these voters. That's my guest, Marcella Garcia. Uh, so turning to you, Adriana Maestas, what that means are, are a couple of things. First, I want to unpack one number with that 29 million extra or rediscovered votes or people counted now who have registered mm-hmm. to vote. Uh, Four million of those are young people. And uh, a lot of the analysts say young people traditionally don't vote. I mean, they may register, but then... Okay, then they don't actually get to the polls. So part of this is that will people actually vote? And the other part of it, the biggest part, is what Marcella has been discussing, which is the lack of outreach. Um, Sometimes it's not even targeted outreach. It's just like plain old ignoring uh, as part of the population. Uh, Would you weigh in on that, please? Well, I think part of it has to do with campaigns. They have to make a calculation about who they're going to contact. So a campaign is more likely to go after that high propensity voter. So if you're running a campaign, you're going to try to target the voters that you know have a history of voting. So when you're dealing with a voting block that is so young, they just don't really have that history. And I understand from the campaign perspective why they're not necessarily going to go after that young voter who might be in college and might be a young professional, somebody who's just working and trying to get by, who is under 25. Um, they they really aren't the investment um, that they're... The, they're not the voters that the candidates, that the campaigns are rather, are investing in. Well, that brings me to uh, Beto O'Rourke. Um, people may know that he is a Democratic candidate, white guy with a uh, a nickname, a kind of with a, a you know, a Latino nickname, um, running against Ted Cruz. And it's an extremely tight race. And a lot of people are looking to see, well, what happens there in Texas with the vote of uh, many Latinos who can make the difference. and. 
Beto O'Rourke himself, now he's the Democratic candidate, very much backed by the party, has said they are not doing. You can't expect people to come and listen to me if you don't reach out to them and say why I'm the candidate. By that he meant ground troops. So he's articulating that as well in an extremely tight race, in a high-profile race where everything is on the line. So we can look then to the other places, Adriana, and say, well, shoot, if they can't do it in Texas, they're really not doing it. Yeah, no. And in Texas, I think they have they have a real um, steep hill to climb. Um, Ted Cruz, I mean, obviously, a Democrat hasn't won statewide in Texas in, I believe, over 20 years. You have Ted Cruz, who's the incumbent. Um, I think a lot of people say that Beto is kind of the media candidate, like people like the in the media seem to like him. But on the ground, I think there's still a lot of Texans who like Ted Cruz. Mm. Um, Even Latino Texans, to be clear. I think so. There Mm -hmm. are some conservative Mexican-Americans in Texas um, who have gravitated or are comfortable with the Republican Party. But I don't, I, I by and large, I would say that in Texas, a majority of Latinos are not in favor of Ted Cruz. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is Texas, to Adriana's point. Um, it, it's a, it's been a red state, and, and it, is, it, it is a very, it's a, it's a deep struggle for any candidate, um, any Democratic candidate. And so, of course, Beto, for that reason, it, I mean, is the perfect media narrative. Do you have uh, a Democrat, a charismatic Democrat, and, and a formidable fundraiser? And, and so, of course, everyone's watching that race, not so much paying to, um, close attention to the polls because, you know, polls have been wrong before. Yes, and, and so it all depends <laughs> on, on voter turnout, this and that. So... It's going to be very interesting what happens. I part of me wants to believe that it's going to it's going to be Beto, you know, by like ten percent. Really? It, oh wow! I, I yeah. you know, again, yeah. okay. Part of me wants to believe <laughs> okay. that, okay. but the more you know, rational me thinks it's going to be. It's not. It may not be. Again, Kylie, like look, yeah. just Ayanna Presley. Who would have thought? Right. But cool. she did the work on the ground, as you said. Right. So and Beto, I think, yeah. has, for the most yeah. part, he has the money to turn the vote out. Again, I I don't know. It, it is Texas. The, the context is different. Um, so we'll see. I, I guess we, we will see that that narrative that emerges after November 6th is going to be very interesting. And a lot of people are watching Texas for that reason. So something that kind of comes up a little bit with the Ted Cruz uh a Beto race, it's a, a better seen in other places, is that we're lumping together many ethnicities under the umbrella of Latino. Sure. So Ted Cruz is Cuban. Yep. So there's an appeal for some people, and some folks say Cubans tend to be more conservative, but there are all kinds of ethnicities under there, and it doesn't mean that anybody can look at the number of 29 million new Latinos who are eligible to vote this time around and make an assessment about what the whole group will do yep. because of the differences under the umbrella. So I wish both of you would address that because that's also something that's not been, it seems to me, taken into account yeah. for those who are trying to reach uh, right. folks uh, who have a Latin ancestry. Let's put it like that. Yeah, uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that that goes to an earlier point I was trying to make that I think campaigns need to get better at that because it's a Latino candidate running in Texas is not the same as a Latino candidate running here in Massachusetts or Florida or California. Obviously, in Texas, you have a lot of people who are Mexican-American, first, second, third, fourth generation. Uh, you also have a lot of Central Americans. And so the Cuban angle doesn't really play there. 
in Florida, obviously, right now there's a governor's race, and you have another dynamic playing completely different. Uh, there's a new... You know, there's been a new influx of Puerto Ricans, for example, moving to Florida after Hurricane Maria. So the, the, the efforts there have been to register those people to vote from both parties. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the issues are different. You know, Puerto Ricans are citizens. They don't really have as a priority immigration reform, for example, whereas in, in a place like Texas, you know, they care about DACA. They care about DREAMers. Uh, they care about other issues. You know, so so those are the nuances mm-hmm. that 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 campaigns or the parties had to get better at identifying to, again, activate Latinos. And, of course, candidates matter, too. Absolutely. Adriana, did you want to add to that? No, I absolutely agree with Marcela. I think that um, it's, you know, a message that will resonate with Mexican-American and Central American voters is going to be very different than one that will resonate with voters who are in um, South Florida and who might be, Cuban American and Venezuelan and you know other South American it's i i think that's the problem with the whole concept of a latino as a whole this umbrella label is that um it's it sometimes tries to be a little bit of everything to everyone and it doesn't really get into that specific um to those specific groups so so the message might be a little off mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that I think we see when we get a lot of messaging coming out of Washington, D.C., um, you know, that really might not resonate with people here in the Southwest or in the Midwest. And that's why it's important to really tap into the local experts, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's turned out to be true. Um, at last go around in 2016, uh, there were a lot of black political operatives who were screaming the same thing. And in those areas where Hillary Clinton lost, um, many of them cited that there were not folks on the ground from the community. So, you know, again, don't assume that even though African-Americans have been very loyal supporters of the Democratic Party, sometimes to their detriment, that that would happen automatically, which is what they assumed and didn't put anybody on the ground. And you see what happened. Anyway, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe and freelance writer Adriana Maestas. We're discussing local, national, Latinx news. Let me switch to uh, the caravan, the migrant caravan that has been so much in the news. And I first I want to play a little sound. The caravan's been moving from Honduras and this is some cheering from the group after Guatemala backed down and let them, uh, the caravan pass. Now, I wanted to play that just so people understand, you know, how large the group is. It's it's waxed and waned in size, but now some people are thinking it's about 2,000. If folks have been paying attention, this is the group that uh, President Trump has threatened all kinds of things. He has just recently uh, issued an order to send um, troops down to the border to prevent uh, access should however many numbers of this caravan reach the border of the United States and uh, between the United States and Mexico. They still got weeks to go to walk, so we don't know what will happen. Um, And he's also threatened to punish Honduras over this, so let's just be clear about it. And, Andriana, you've been pointing out that what's happening in terms of the conditions uh, in Honduras that have put a lot of people on that road seeking asylum in some ways was created by uh, some of the policies of the United States. Um, Would you explain, please? Absolutely. So, 
And there was a coup in Honduras in 2009. This happened um, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Democratically elected president was ousted and they installed somebody else. And since then, Honduras has sort of been in chaos. And the president that they currently have is somebody that the U.S. supports. He was elected last year. His name is Juan Orlando Hernandez. A lot of the people in Honduras do not support him, the people who are who are leaving. So there's a lot of chaos in Honduras. You know, people are suffering. Um, the presidency is not really providing for the people or leading. There's issues with safety and food. Uh, the minimum wage in Honduras is under $400 an a month, but it, you know the costs for electricity, food, and water average over five hundred dollars a month. So you kind of do the math; people are upside down. You know, the, you just can't make it there. So you know, the U.S. has been heavily involved in Central America for um, decades. You know, over fifty years. But you know, the U.S. State Department has supported this guy, the guy in charge, the um, Mr. Hernandez. And so that's kind of where we are in Honduras. It's it's interesting that, you know, we talk about borders and sovereignty, but we really don't mention how the U.S. doesn't always respect the sovereignty of these nations from where these people are coming. What does it mean um, since, it, uh, as you say, this is a, the guy in charge, it's someone who has been backed by the U.S., for Donald Trump, uh, our president, to say, OK, if you don't stop him, I'm going to punish you. This is ostensibly his guy. So... How are we to look at that? <laughs> I think for people here in the U.S., they don't. I, I, I'm sure the Honduran elite is a little taken off guard by that. Um, but it's kind of like. But I think people here in the U.S. they don't really pay attention to that. They just see how Trump is going to use this. He's going to. He uses the rhetoric. He's talking about. You know, there's some. He said something about there's now people from the Middle East in the caravan. Right. And, you know, and, and that's been proven to be untrue. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's just going to continue to use the caravan um, and try to uh, try to bully these states and uh, and get them to um, try to keep the people there in these dire conditions. Mm. Um all right. Well, I want to move on to another um, Trump administration policy, um, Marcella. Um, and that's about these deported kids. We spent weeks and days and still um, all the, the children that were separated by uh, a, a Trump policy, folks who crossed over um, his initial policy was that they should be separated. The parents should be separated from the kids. And then a judge said, put them back together. But still, as we know, there's lots of kids who have not been reunited. Some of those parents, for people that don't know, were deported. Now, some may have been deported for you know, unsavory situations, but a lot of them were deported for, uh, I, I can't even, it, it's just too wonky to go well, down the hill, but a lot of different yes. um, bureaucratic reasons that, right. you know, but the bottom line is this, their children were left behind. And now against what is legal, some of these children are in danger well, of being adopted. No, That's what I actually, no. Yeah. This AP investigation, I think this is, this AP investigation has been this sort Associated of Press for Associated Press okay. investigation mm-hmm. that found. I mean, this is the headline: deported parents may may lose right. kids to adoption. And the context here is very important, um, not because I want to credit the Trump administration for anything, but I think that it's important to put this in the right context. This AP investigation is from a case that originated in the Obama administration. And right. it is an example of what happened 
um, in in a very very um, horrific case in which a, a, a daughter or, or a, um, a, a young girl was separated from her mother um, in similar circumstances when you know they came um, illegally or tried to cross the border illegally, and and the girl was put with foster parents. Long story short, she was eventually reunited with her mother. In uh, I think it was was it Honduras or El Salvador? I can't remember. Um, any, in any case. But that was after she was adopted by some people here. Well, tried yeah, to, to be, be adopted. Yeah, right, tried right, to be yeah. adopted. A judge <laughs> yeah. sent her back. So I guess what the AP investigation was trying to say is like, look, this is this has happened. This is the danger that we are right now. And because the Trump administration is so secretive and not transparent, we don't even know if this is already happening. Mm -hmm. But what's important to, I think, to me, the message to me that kind of got lost and people were outraged. The message that got lost is that this happened in the Obama administration, and this has been happening for a long time. Mm -hmm. This separation of families has been happening. People were just not paying attention. Society right now is outraged, you know, rightly outraged, mm -hmm. at the images that we saw this summer with the family separation, the zero tolerance policy, you know, kids being separated from their parents and parents being deported. So, granted, of course, we should be outraged, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, we shouldn't leave the context behind. And I think this is where the media needs to get better at. And this goes to the same point um, to, you know, to the Honduras caravan. Like, I think the media is playing a, a big, big role in inflaming and playing Trump's game. I mean, the the, the caravan is he is not going to lose his opportunity. It's a golden opportunity for him to use in the midterms. And, you know, he's not going to drop. But the media has to play a bigger role in talking about what Adriana was saying, putting it in the right context. Why are people fleeing Central America? And in the same way here to say, look, this started in the Obama administration. This is not new. Trump didn't wake up one day and say, I want to separate kids. This system was already in place and has been in place for a while. And I think it's important that we put it in that context. So not to give Trump right. credit or anything, but, you know, Obama also didn't do a good job handling this. Well, he was known as a deporter in chief. Exactly. Let's, let's be reminded mm -hmm. of that. But, uh, but my my uh, issue is about these kids. <laughs> being, I know, you know Kelly. Being caught up I, in the I get adoption. it. I get it. Yeah. But even then, we have to put it in the right context. That those kids, you know, I think right now it's only like two hundred kids who haven't been mm -hmm. reunited for many reasons. Um, but but of course they have bungled. They, they totally messed this up, and these kids are definitely in in danger of. I mean, this is why the AP investigation, you know, provided this this or it shows that this case mm -hmm. could happen right now. But we don't know because the Trump administration is so secretive. All right, I'm just wanting to put that on the yeah, table. Yeah, no, totally. Lot, this. There are many instances in the past of kids being um, separated from their parents for various other political reasons, and they end up um, as if they had no parents and being right. adopted. And that's this is a warning sign for everybody to sure. pay attention to that. Uh, Adriana, did you want to add to that or no? No, I, I think that that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that some people in just sort of build, building solidarity and making connections to historically how this has happened, like you said, other children have been taken from their families is kind of looking at what's happened to Native American children in the U.S. Yes, yeah, see, that's what I'm I mean, thinking. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are looking at um, these children who are coming from Honduras uh, largely have Native American ancestry. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're Mayan. They um, some of them speak indigenous languages. So arguably um, they might, you know, they have connections to this continent that run quite deep. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm switching uh 
total to vibe to um, this very interesting story about uh, the U.S. lacking Latino hist- historical sites and landmarks. Now, what the story does point out is that there are some. Mm-hmm. They're just not recognized or highlighted or on a heritage trail or any of that. And they're in danger of being, you know, bulldozed over or no markers or all of that. And we lose quite a bit of history. This is American history, by the way. We're talking American history. What I didn't know, Marcella, is that most of the the what might be considered Latino historical sites now that are marked have to do with the Spanish American, American War, War right. period. But yeah. there's, you know, the site where the uh, Latino soldiers in the Civil War, that's, Spanish you soldiers. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just goes... To show, you know, like recently there was also a debate or a controversy over, you know, we don't have a Latino history museum either. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this... If There's we pressure on the, on the Smithsonian, by the way, to respond to exactly, this. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so if you can't protect our landmarks, you know, how can we expect that you are going to, that, that this country is going to you know, uh, recognize, the truly recognize the um, Latino history here that goes back, you know, further back than, you know, this country's history, right? Like, of course, these sites were, you know, this was part of Mexico before. So uh, it's... um, yeah. But, but even with modern stuff, like uh, where uh, foreign Cesar, leader right. Cesar Chavez, Cesar Chavez. Says, you know, that should be, everybody should know that. I know. And my point, Adriana, is that this is American history that has a Latino flavor that's not getting noticed. Recognized, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, like there's the house where Cesar Chavez um, was born. I think that's in Yuma, Arizona. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a marker there. Nothing. It's um, abandoned. Mm-hmm. And, and here, even in the Los Angeles area, um, there are a lot of sites that are rich from, from the Chicano movement, which wasn't really too long ago. We're right, talking the right. 60s and 70s that people are just now trying to put markers on and um, so that people know and have walking history tours with youth and, and point things out. Like this is where the Chicano moratorium was. This is where the Brown Berets organized, that sort of thing. So I, I do think it's important, um, but it kind of gets to, you know, like you said, the whole issue. It, it means different things in different parts of the country. Mm. Um, I think you know, a lot of the pressure. American history. That's my point. And mm-hmm. I'm remembering to both of you, I'm going to remind you that when Ken Burns did his Civil War yeah. documentary series, there was a lot of pushback. Well, I mean, to that point, you know, I mean, the larger point that I, I think it's important here is that there is no single... Latino leadership that, you know, this goes to Adriana's point that, that, that it's all segmented, you mm-hmm. know, people, people in Arizona, people in California, mm-hmm. people in Texas, people in Florida, there is no single Latino figure or you, you know, there, where's the Latino Ken Burns or where is the, the, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. filmmaker that's going to elevate these issues? And so I think that we're lacking that in a way to bring awareness to all of this and then push for for recognition and ultimately a Latino American museum too. Um, just so people know, there was the 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 battle was called the Gettysburg of the West. Hmm. And it's in uh, New Mexico where the Hispanic Union soldiers during the Battle of Glorieta, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that Glorieta, right. Glorieta, yeah, perfect. The pass. Um, so 
you know, that was not in the Civil War series. There was a lot of pushback about it. And that's what that's we're talking right. about. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, but because there was no one to push that. Right. So there's not voices there on, the, no... on the on the historic landmarks commissions. These are things that when we talk about history, it, all of us are part of it. And we just have to make sure that yeah. it's, it's uh, more widespread. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe and freelance writer Adriana Maestas. It's our Latinx News Roundtable. Now, speaking of that, let's take a listen to something. Here's a montage I want you both to listen to. Latinx. Latinx. <clears throat> Latinx. What the heck is Latinx? What's with the X in Latinx? Latinx. Latinx. Lat Latinx. Latinx. Okay. <laughs> uh, Adriana, you weren't here for the conversation that we had about Hispanic and Latino that has uh, some, some historic roots. So, but this is a new term, um, and it's been uh, particularly highlighted in a new book called Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture. This is by Paul Reyes. And um, I just wanted to talk to you two about how you feel about the terminology. Obviously, we've adopted it because we were told this is, you know, forward thinking and we want to be that. <laughs> so I'm going to let you two weigh in on it. You know, I'm absolutely fine with it. Um yeah. And it's something that I was sort of made more aware of, I would say, maybe within the last three or four years, and especially amongst some of the younger activists and um, younger writers in our community, you know, that just wanted to point out how Spanish is so gendered. And so the X is good for people who um, might not feel that they identify um, as he or she, and, you know, maybe they're more gender fluid. So for me, it's okay. Um, I also know that, I mean, out here, I hear Chicanx for mm. Chicanos, you know, they, they throw in the X too. So I really don't have a problem with it. I think it's okay if people want to call themselves that. It's, it doesn't hurt me. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, I see a lot of outrage on both sides. Um, and, and, you know, for, I guess, legitimate reasons. I, have no problem with someone calling One being, themselves. So people understand what the outrage is. It's not Spanish. Well, yeah, and that and yeah. that getting rid of the gendered, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. is basically sort of like an affront to mm -hmm. a language that mm -hmm. should be preserved. Blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And it's true. I mean, the Spanish language is it, that's a fact, right? But but language should be evolving too with society, I guess. And and just like we have Spanglish, mm. it's I, I see it as a natural evolution of. The Latino community here, and in in a recognition, like Adriana said, to younger generations uh, who want to be more inclusive of other groups, and and I I, I sometimes call my I, I sometimes refer to Latinos as Latinx, sometimes Latinos Latinas. I do everything. I <laughs> I, I honestly think it's great, um, and it, it again is just a, a natural evolution of it's it's almost like. You know, when you're when you're code switching, you know, like I was talking about Span Spanglish, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's mm -hmm. it's like sometimes, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I'm talking to someone who speaks Spanish and we switch back and forth between Spanish and English and and we make up words and we're <laughs> always like, you know, creating new ways of like pronouncing a word, you know. And and it's the same thing. It it, it is a form of code switching too, and I think it's great. What do you think it's a uh, generational? Definitely. I think it's generational, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad or wrong. Or It, it is definitely generational. Yeah. I, I asked that, Andreana, to know if older folks, and by that I mean, you know, I guess past 20, are, are pushing back, you know, for historical, traditional, cultural reasons, and uh, younger people are like, yeah, 
that's not that's not that's I, I have heard some um of the elders kind of push back because they're in they and, and one of the critiques is the way it sounds like mm. the x sounds a little harsh whereas um right maybe they feel using the o and the a is a little more poetic um but i I kind of think it's really not a big deal. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not a big deal. We have a lot more important things to discuss uh, than out, getting outraged over a letter. Well, yes. And we did discuss them here, and I thank both of you for joining me today. <laughs> How about that? Yes, awesome. <laughs> you're right. We did talk about okay. important things. <laughs> Marcella Garcia is an editorial writer for the Boston Globe, and Adriana Maestas is a freelance writer covering Latino politics. Coming up, despite the accomplishments of legendary talents like Mary Lou Williams and Jerry Allen, women in jazz have been dismissed and erased through the decades. Now a new institute out of the Berklee College of Music is clearing a path for future generations of jazz musicians of all genders. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Only God can make a tree, and only men can play good jazz, wrote jazz critic George T. Simon in his 1967 book, The Big Bands. His quote all but summed up the consensus about female jazz musicians at the time, a consensus that even today many jazz critics, enthusiasts, and even some artists unfortunately still hold. Over a half century since George Simon dismissed the talent and artistry of female jazz musicians, Musicians, the genre remains a nearly impervious boys' club. Now, a new initiative out of Berklee College of Music is asking, what would jazz sound like without patriarchy? Joining me in the studio to talk about Berkeley's new Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, Terry Lynn Carrington, the Zildjian Chair in Performance at Berkeley College of Music and the founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. Welcome, Terry Lynn. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. And joining me from the studios of NPR in New York is Farah Jasmine Griffin, who is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African American Studies at Columbia University. Welcome, Farah. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, this is a conversation I'm just so excited to have because um, I, it, it's one that I think if when you think of when people hear it and, and, and think about it for a second, they get it. But at the outset, you think, well, I, I think I know a lot of women jazz musicians. What are they talking about? Why is there a need for an institute for jazz and gender justice, Terry Lynn? Well, I think we... We think that we know a lot of female jazz musicians, but if you really look at the numbers, there aren't that many in comparison. Uh, if you look at collegiate programs, there aren't that many uh, percentage-wise. If you look at high school programs or middle school, even middle school jazz programs, 
Um, it's just the numbers are pretty bad. So I think um, the people tend to celebrate the people that are popular or people, you know, like my, myself, Esperanza Spalding, different. I mean, this one person wrote, I think it was in the New York Times, you know, if, sure, Esperanza and Terry Lynn are doing great, but what about everybody else? You know, so I think that uh, it's, a, it's something to really uh, look at honestly. And what do you think an institute like this, like the one that's being set up uh, at Berkeley, can do to sort of begin to change that? Well, we have a lot of goals. Mm-hmm. Um, some are looking back at the contributions that women have, have done and have had um, and celebrating those more, bringing light to some facts um, that people may not know, and also celebrating the contributions of, of current female artists. Um, but I think the biggest thing is to, um, you know, change the cult, try to change or shift the culture and try to uh, have people understand that the music may sound different if the feminine aesthetic is embraced. Um, if compositions, like when we play these standards, uh, most of them are written by men. It was funny because um, when we did this event uh, on Martha's Vineyard this summer, I wanted uh, the young women that were playing to play some standards written by women, and I couldn't find any Mm. other than Willow Weep for Me that are solely written by women. Of course, some uh, have written lyrics, um, but we have this huge repertoire, (laughs) and our voices aren't heard fully there either. Um, You know, just to have ownership in the music, Mm. I want to create an environment uh, where we feel, young women feel like, they're not invited to a party. They're throwing the party. You know, to have real ownership, this is our music. Uh, well, you're always throwing the party, and if people know your work, um, they know that you are a three-time Grammy-winning artist. I want to give them a chance to hear some of your work. This is a cut from Mosaic Triad. This is off of your uh 2011 album, The Mosaic Project, and the album featured an all-women ensemble and won Best Jazz Vocal Album at the 2012 Grammys. And again, that was a cut from Terry Lynn Carrington's 2011 album, The Mosaic Project, featuring all women. So they do exist. We know that. Um, just before I move over to Farah, just uh, this question. You've said that you, your own career has been a little bit charmed because you had an introduction, a mentor in your own dad, um, who was a jazz saxophone player, um, Matt Carrington. Um, but that didn't necessarily, that hasn't necessarily been something that could translate to many other young women. Right. I mean, I also had some other great male mentors, um, Jack DeJeanette, Wayne Shorter. Um, they're champions for, for women in this business. But um, when I look around, even just yesterday, um, I had a student uh, this past summer from California, and uh, she did great in our summer program. I had a, a women's performance ensemble where people audition from all over the world to get in. And um, her mother sent copied me on an email that she sent to the band director at a performing arts school. 
And uh, I mean, it was I was in shock. You know, she's you know, he's totally uh, being abusive, you know, mm-hmm. emotionally, verbally. And, uh, you know, saying that women, he's never met a good woman jazz player. And that's so funny because you basically just quoted the same thing from a book from so long ago. That's right. And the fact that these things are still happening. I think I woke up one day and was just, you know, really pissed off. And, um, you know, I couldn't um, just, you know, I couldn't rest in the fact that I've done well. And I've just started feeling like I'm not doing my job unless... You know, I do some work to uh, make it easier for women that are coming behind me. Okay. All right. Uh, Farah Jasmine Griffin, you um, your expertise is in African-American culture with a focus on cultural jazz history. And so I'm going to ask a question that's going to sound maybe so simple, but it has many layers. Uh, why are women in jazz marginalized or maligned? Well, I think it's very similar to women in our society in general. Um that, you know, patriarchy seeps through every element of our society. Um, and that's been the case in African-American communities. It's been the case in many of our cultural forms. Um, that structures that are in place simply repeat the status quo. And there are few women who are have been able to sort of creep through them or break through them but um, without really changing those structures. I think one of the things that's so exciting about what Terry Lynn is doing is that it's institutionalizing um, something that we'll look at. How can we actually change the structure at the root um, that creates these kinds of inequities that don't allow women equal access, that their, that their talent you know, should be enough, but it has not been enough. Um, so I think it's just the, the overarching sense of sexism and patriarchy in general, and jazz is a reflection of that. Well, let's take a listen to someone who uh, should have made a bigger mark. Um, this is uh, Blues Melba, uh, trombonist, arranger, and composer Melba Liston's 1958 album Melba Liston and Her Bones. And it's the only album that Melba led during her recording career. <laughs> I played that um, not only because Melba Liston is probably a name a lot of people don't know and they don't know of her, um, the level of her artistry, but also because she played the trombone. <laughs> and I have learned in uh, doing the research for this, uh, p- this conversation that instruments are gendered so that women who play a trombone, um, not considered to be feminine, that's not something a woman can do, that's something a man can do, ostensibly, so the stereotype goes. Um, If you're a female singer, that's your instrument, that's accepted. Uh, The piano, in some ways, is accepted. Mm -hmm. Would you speak about that gendering that happens even at the instrument level? Certainly. I mean, especially in jazz, when we think of the sort of iconic... Um, figure, jazz figure, we often think of the saxophonist and we don't think of a Tia Fuller, right? We, exactly. we think of um, the jazz cats who, who are at the saxophone. It, it's a very j- trumpet same way. Um, and so I, I think that 
because women voc- women vocalists have just been um, so you know powerful that they've defined that role. But one of the things that we often forget is that some of our greatest vocalists were also extraordinary instrumentalists. Um, Sarah Vaughan was a very gifted pianist. Carmen McRae started out as a pianist. Um, and as you say, the piano is an instrument that we've been able to see, you know, women playing, thinking that it's a more genteel instrument. But certainly when it comes to the horns or Terry Lynn playing the drums, I think that those instruments are instruments that we conventionally think of as male. Um, And it's unfortunate because you can hear that Melba is very talented, very gifted. She's also an incredibly gifted arranger. Um, And, you you know, her male peers like Dexter Gordon and the late Randy Weston, recently passed away Randy Weston, you know, held her in high regard and esteem as a musician and as as an arranger. Um, So it's unfortunate that we can't see beyond those limiting um, categories. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Terry Lynn Carrington and Farah Jasmine Griffin. We're discussing the new Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice. Um, let me follow up with you, uh, Farah Griffin of Columbia University. You think of jazz, We know, what we know about jazz is that it's a risk-taking genre and that it uh, was a part of a genre that worked toward breaking down some racial stereotypes. And yet when it comes to sexism, this has been uh, quite stubborn. I wonder if you could speak to why that is. I mean, and why wouldn't they sort of run on parallel tracks? Well, I think that, you know, questions about gender, gender equality, gender difference are some of the most deeply entrenched, (laughs) you know, long lasting, I mean, uh, uh, modes of inequality that we have. I mean, racial inequality in our country in particular is um, especially challenging, but um, the patriarchy is even older. (laughs) Um, And so I I think it isn't surprising that it will take, um, it's not something that just happens naturally. It takes an effort. It often takes movement. We're We're in a moment of a kind of heightened movement around gender justice right now. Um, and does and that it, help? Does that help? I think, I think that helps. I think that it helps because it calls attention to, particularly with something like the Me Too moment, um, it calls attention to every aspect of our society, including um, our culture and our cultural form and our cultural production in jazz. So I think that this is a time when um, it's a difficult time, but it's a time that if people confront honestly um, the challenges that face us, they can be changed. I should say also, I especially like um, that Terry Lynn's Institute is an institute not of women in jazz, but gender justice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that means that we all have to be invested in this, that it's looking at the role of gender um, in the music, both the role of masculinity and femininity and females and males, and that men have to be as responsible, and that it is a question of justice. It's a question of simply what is right and what is equitable. And so I think that's something that is so unique to what she's doing and also gives it its power. That's my guest, 
Farah Jasmine Griffin of Columbia University, and we're talking about Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice. Um, back over to you, Terry Lynn. I want to first play this piece by Mary Lou Williams, and then I want to. T- there's something I want to bring up for both of you to respond to. This is Aries off pianist, arranger, and composer Mary Lou Williams' Zodiac Suite, and it was recorded in 1945. <laughs> That's beautiful. Mary Lou Williams was, you know, stellar. Maybe you, you might want to uh, talk about who she is, but um, in the in answering my next question, which is, um, in 2014, they changed a jazz festival that was named for her and for women, women in jazz. Uh, the Mary Lou Williams William and Jazz Festival got changed to the Mary Lou Williams Jazz Festival, so it's no longer women-centric. And I thought, well, <laughs> that seemed a little early to be changing something since we're talking about um, they're still the numbers are low. They're not that much as much attention as should be pl- or platforms really for women with the talent to to have. Uh, but then um, Farrah just talked about gender justice. So I don't know how you feel about that. Is that was that a loss that um, that was a platform that was strictly for women that no longer there? By the way, this is managed by the Kennedy Center. If People have not heard about it before. Well, um, when I first heard that, uh, that my feeling was the same. Um, my feeling was maybe it's too early to do that. But I think they've still kept it focused on women. But the idea was to not segregate you know, women but still celebrate women with the festival. And um, I don't think—see, to me, if the idea was just to bring more m- men to perform, have you know, another festival— Full of men, then that would have been problematic. Mm-hmm. But um, the consciousness uh, is still there. Uh, so I think they were making an effort to be progressive. <laughs> so I, I understand, uh, you know, the, their thought process. I'm still not sure, like you said, that uh, if it shouldn't have waited some more time. But um, Mary Lou was, you know, one of the, you know, few women that was really accepted, uh, you know, by Duke Ellington and so many people that she composed for and played with. And she spanned through so many different genres inside of jazz, um, you know, from early, not ragtime, but early early swing to bebop. Big uh, bands, B- Biddy Goodman. Yeah, big band <laughs> music. I mean, she, she, she kept um, evolving as the music evolved, which is very rare. Mm-hmm. And she did it uh, amazingly. Um, and her composing, you know, she I forget how many pieces, but I know there's like hundreds of pieces uh, published by her. Um, and she also, uh, you know, did some interesting spiritual work um, around the music, you know, making it more acceptable as a spiritual uh, music. Whereas, you know, people like to look at um, jazz, you know, not being sacred. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel like, you know, our institute will definitely uh, look at people like Mary Lou Williams and the contributions. In fact, we're showing um, her film at our open house. Mm-hmm. Our open house is October 30th, and we'll, we'll be showing her film there. Um, 
And also we, we like to focus on people like Jerry Allen, who to me carried on the tradition of, of Mary Lou in a lot of the same ways. Well, let's listen to a piece. Well, this is actually a piece that you did. This is a, a pianist and composer Jerry Allen is performing her song, Unconditional Love, with you on drums and Esperanza Spalding, who uh, on bass uh, and vocals, I can talk. Um, and by the way, Esperanza Spalding, for people who are fans of WGBH in general, composed the theme music for Basic Black, the program here. Oh, <laughs> so I that's just a note that. that people should know. Anyway, here's the cut. Beautiful. I just wanted people to hear we, you know, the music from the person you were talking about. That piece is called Unconditional Love. These are new standards. You know, a lot of Jerry's compositions and Esperanza's and other people, these are new standards. And that's one of uh, another project that we're going to try to do is make a book um, of female composers and um, really shed light on, on that side of, uh, you know, jazz artistry by women. Um, and that particular song is, has been recorded at least three or four times. So um, I, I produced a record for Diane Reeves where we recorded a different version of the song and Diane wrote a lyric. Um, I recorded, Jerry recorded it once or twice and uh, maybe somebody else. So was, uh, we're working on making these new standards. be remiss if I didn't um, ask you, uh, Terry Lynn, about uh, the, the uh, situation at Berkeley and how this institute may uh, have some, may be as a result of that or some connection to it. Uh, last year, uh, it was reported that uh, 11 faculty members at Berkeley were let go before sexual assault. It was very upsetting to the both the rest of the faculty and the students. Um, and out of that grew um, many programs and initiatives to address uh, the environment. Now, is the Institute part of that, or is it just the timing of it just happened at the same time? Well, let's just say that uh, the timing, uh, I've been talking about this Institute for mm, over two years, and um, I think uh, it, the, these incidents that happened helped propel the college to uh, get behind the Institute. I won't say it's a direct result because we were having conversations, but I think that it happened more swiftly uh, because of of that. And, you know, people really realizing that some things need to be done to really shift the culture. Um, and I must say, you know, Berkeley got a lot of bad press, you know, for what happened, but I feel that they were always, uh, the college was they always had a bit of a no-tolerance policy, and whenever they investigated these things, they took care of it immediately. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of the old school people left that, you know, you know, in the unions and all that that um, are protecting, you know, the faculty and not really thinking um, about 
these issues, but mm-hmm. I, I believe that the the leadership now is really, you know, challenging mm-hmm. that. But you know, it's a lot of red tape uh, with uh, bylaws and unions to deal with. So they're really working on changing it. Okay, uh, Farah, you'll be giving the keynote address when the institute, you know, does the the, the big kickoff. Um, what what will you say that you want people to really the 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 nugget you want people to take away from um, thinking about? what this institute of um, uh, can do um, in this space, in the jazz space. Right. I think that whenever we focus on issues of justice, um, it behooves us to imagine the world we're trying to create. Um, You know, what would the world look like if we um, achieved our goals, right? And and I think that what I'd like to focus on is if, if this institute is successful at achieving its goals, what does jazz look like? And jazz would look like um, a place where it wouldn't be, it wouldn't really matter so much if the Mary Lou Williams Festival was changed from women in jazz to jazz because jazz would be inclusive of women. And that would mean that the women were also already there, right? Um, and so I think I'd, I'd like to um, just see it as a kind of aspirational, an opportunity for us to um, dream about what it is we're trying to create with, with this music that we all love, that we all love, that we've come to from a place of love and hard work and devotion, and um, that it can only be made better by the work that um, the Jazz and Gender Institute hopes to accomplish. Um, and you'll put a button on Terry Lynn Carrington that women can't play. You'll erase that, right? <laughs> well, that's why our slogan is jazz without patriarchy. Right. You know, that's, um, you know, that's what our focus is. And, it, and as Farah said earlier, uh, we're really challenging the men to take responsibility in this, too, as far as mentoring um, and as far as, you know, calling their uh, colleagues on poor behavior and really, you know, educating each other. It's not just our job. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Terry Lynn Carrington is the founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. And Farah Jasmine Griffin is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African-American Studies at Columbia University. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.